1: This is Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Hello, hello. I'm speaking to you from Bonnie Scotland. And how is Bonnie Scotland?
3: Oh, very bonny. I um, I swam in the North Sea this morning. Wow. I mean, that is impressive, isn't it?
2: How was the North Sea?
3: It was a great experience. I did a book event in St Andrews last night, and at the end of the book event, and I said this in during the event. I, I said I must get somebody to. Tell me about swimming in the sea. So I then asked, and I said, "Who swims in the sea?" And a few people put their hands up. Quite a few people. Who swims in September? A few people put their hands up. Who's swimming at seven thirty tomorrow morning? And two or three
2: uh, students put their hand up. So we met at seven thirty this morning, and, I, and we went into the North Sea. And when you say you swam with them, what were you splashing around together? Are you playing a little water polo? What did what, you do? Not exactly. It was ten minutes, but it was it was ten minutes. But it it, just, it was really
3: nice. I did go the full. You've seen the photo. The full kit and kaboodle of the socks and the gloves and the hat. I didn't want. I didn't come. I didn't come un unprepared. Oh, so you took all your paraphernalia? I did. Wow.
2: Anyway, I feel invigorated. I sort of, you know, wish you were here. You you could have come into the North Sea with me. I, I I could have stood on the beach with the towel ready to wrap you up when you came out.
3: I felt it was a sort of. I felt I was kind of possibly competing with Michael Gove for. You know what I mean? He did that sort of <laughs> dancing in Aberdeen. I sort of thought you know no apparent pictures existed. Exist. Well, I th-
2: I think it is very trusting of you that you you met three pretty much complete strangers and you trusted none of them to covertly film you or take pictures of you in your swimming I gear know. and upload them to social media.
3: No, I know well it was very nice
2: to them. How's your week been? Good. I am um, I managed to get hold of some Abba tickets to go and see the holograms. Wow. When? In June of next year. Am I? Well, when we talked about it last week, you you didn't seem that interested in watching the holograms.
3: I know, I know, I know.
2: I blew it, didn't I? Yeah. I really like that. I still have faith in you. It's good, isn't it? And ha- have you seen the computer-generated avatars yet? I haven't really. I know you sent it to me and I haven't. I've sort of,
3: haven't managed to work it. So I've ended up sort of listening to the song rather than... Uh, it's it's
2: a YouTube link Ed. It's not complicated. I no, know, I know,
3: I know. Oh God! Can I just say when I didn't? Re- I, I've got to tell you this story. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. you're gonna lo- you're just gonna love this story. The long and the short of this story is that I got an earbud stuck in my ear this week. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, they say you should never put anything in your ear smaller than your elbow. What not I had these
3: little
2: headphones in? Right, the the, the ones that aren't connected to wires. Yeah. And then, and then, as I was,
3: I thought I'm really organised. I'm going to download a podcast, listen on the tube. I was on my way into the shadow cabinet, and then it, I, it sort of got knocked out. And then the earbud wasn't there, but the thing without the earbud wasn't. I thought, oh well, so I'll just put the thing back in my ear.
2: And then, about halfway through the shadow cabinet, I thought there's something funny in my ear. So did did you did you ask a fellow member of the shadow cabinet to have a little rummage I around did, in there? I did.
3: I have to have a quick look with an iPhone. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and then uh, what did you go to casualty what happened no no some kind person who should remain nameless I would have a pair of tweezers got them out this is fantastic is it somebody we would have heard of no
3: it's mutual aid society but uh,
2: that's the most Ed thing I've ever
3: I mean it really heard. is isn't it I just thought you would absolutely <laughs> love it I mean I almost made it my reason to be cheerful <laughs> it's, I think it could be my reason to be cheerful I thought to myself there's something odd here and I, I just thought, thought and I was sort of Rubbing my ear, and then I thought, "Hang on a minute, man!" I suddenly put two and two together, you know, <laughs> Sherlock, and thought, "Hang on, earbud. I couldn't find the earbud on the floor. Maybe it's in my ear. <laughs> Be careful with earbuds." Is all I can say.
2: Well, I, th- I thought um mentioning Abba was apt because of the subject of the episode this week. So we're going to talk about the future of uh, of cash, and you know beyond. Ulvaeus is very anti-cash. Why? I've got a quote. I wrote it down, actually, what he said. He said, um, imagine how much more tax revenue it would bring in. We could fix up hospitals or whatever. Oh, I see. Bjorn again.
3: You didn't even laugh at my sort of kind of slightly sly
2: ABBA tribute band reference. I thought I gave you a small, a, a small smile, an encouraging smile. you thought it was useless. Right. This week, we're talking about the future of money.
3: As you say, physical cash has been declined for years with less than one in five payments now made in cash compared to more than half of payments a decade ago. At the same time, we hear a lot about how Bitcoin and other digital currencies could revolutionize how we pay for things. Now, we are going to try and get our heads around what these new forms of money actually are and how useful they could be. First, we're talking to the Guardians technology editor, Alex Hearn, and he's going to be explaining the basics of Bitcoin and also that it uses, I mean, this is mind-blowing, it uses nearly half a percent
2: of the world's electricity at the moment, Bitcoin. Did you know that? I, I found this out quite recently. I found out about people getting into all kinds of debt uh, because they're, they're setting up these computers to mine Bitcoin and then ending up with huge electricity bills. It's unbelievable, and it? It all seems kind of, I mean, maybe I've, I'm not understanding something, but it seems kind of pointless as well. I just can't believe it. Anyway, he's, he's, he's going to argue it's not the future of money. Then we're talking to
3: Josh Ryan Collins from UCL about why the Bank of England is exploring introducing its own digital currency and how it could be transformational. And finally, we're talking to Rachel Statham from the think tank IPPR about why the discussion about the future of money shouldn't forget the important role that physical cash will continue to have for some
2: time to come. And our cheerful person is Ray Hopkinson, who is from the environmental charity Hubbub. And we're going to be talking to her about an exciting new bike library that is being trialled in London in the Tower Hamlets area. What's your reason to be cheerful? I saw something on Twitter the other day that I thought was lovely and that doesn't happen much anymore, does it? Definitely not. It took me back to the good old days of Twitter from about 10 years ago and it was somebody called Dame Denise Mina at Dame Demise Mina, who had visited the Pencil Museum in Keswick in the Lake District and then had done a Twitter thread about what she'd seen there. But I, I just loved seeing all those pictures in the Pencil Museum because I went there when I was younger and I remember seeing the world's second longest pencil. Well, that is a claim to fame. Yeah, and, and what I'm unclear of is is whether it used to be the world's longest pencil or if there was some kind of an incident with a sharpener. Maybe somebody could tell us. What's your reason to be cheerful? I mean, I'm sort of slightly overflowing with them. But
3: the one I'm going to go for is that uh, at said book event last night, I met two people who are definitely a reason to be cheerful. And that is Bridie and Nat. Bridie and Nat. Bridie and Nat did philosophy at St. Andrews. What do you think they do now?
2: Um, They're professional philosophers. Nope. Nope. They are detectives. They're they're detectives solving underwater crimes in a submarine. Merely, no. In fact, okay. I, I mean, I'm, am I supposed to just keep guessing until I get there? They're an Anton Deck tribute act. Nope.
3: They are organic farmers. Oh, from philosophy to organic farming. In fact, they are not just organic farmers. They are the Falkland Kitchen Farm, which just won. and I'm going to get this wrong. From the that just won the award from the Soil Association. For the best organic farm under ten hectares, fantastic! And what's more, they listened to the podcast and they were listening to it uh, picking potatoes
2: at the same time as you were talking about picking as potatoes. I was talking about potatoes. So there you go. And we, you said on the podcast last week that you've you've never tilled the earth. Were they forthcoming with an offer for you to go and uh, have a go on a hoe? Mm, I think they
3: were sort of too polite to think I kind <laughs> of. They I, they kind of. Sized me up and down and thought, mm, "We don't want him. We don't want him at our farm. What? What? It could, you know, things could really take a turn for the worse."
2: You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, to give us the beginner's guide to Bitcoin and beyond, we're joined by Alex Hearn, who is UK technology editor at the Guardian. Hello, Alex.
3: Hello. He's, he's the ABC for A B C
2: for of Bitcoin, isn't he? Yeah or the A to Z the A to Z maybe <laughs> I feel that it, you know in in any social conversation I've had over the last five years, it's what you're watching on Netflix, and then somebody brings up that they know somebody who bought a bit of Bitcoin and and now is incredibly rich or somebody who missed out on it uh and and yet, I've still been none the wiser, and in watching your videos, I feel that I've learned more in two or three minutes of your videos than all those conversations combined.
0: I mean, the thing is, like, it's very easy for me to sound like I know everything, but I'm also the person who has on file uh, written in 2013 a piece saying Bitcoin was wildly overvalued at $35. So I trade all of this cred now in for actually having been right then and buying some bloody Bitcoins
2: Well, let's try and bring some of your magic to our listeners then. So so let's start with the basics. Uh, We've all heard the word, we all use the word, but what is it?
0: Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer currency. A lot of buzzwords, but that means it is um, the first real working example of a an online form of money, a, a digital native form of cash that didn't rely on some middleman, some a, a bank or a company like PayPal to act as the go-between for all of the financial transactions that happened on it. On a technological basis, that's a really tough nut to crack. Because if you think about what uh, what digital money means, it's very easy to do it if you have a centralized thing. Because then it's just Santander records how much money I have in a big spreadsheet or thereabouts. And when I send someone money, they drop the number down. When someone sends me money, they raise the number up. And because everyone trusts them and the other banks, that's fine. When you lose those centralized authorities, suddenly, you know, there's no real way to stop me sending you money and telling you, don't worry, I've changed my record of it. And then not changing my record Aha! and sending money to everyone. You know, you can cut and paste a JPEG a million times. So you can't exactly use a picture of a banknote. So what do you do? And Bitcoin is the first big answer for what you do, which is basically throw maths and computer cycles at it so that you can build a global network where every member of the network spends real resources proving that they believe that what is on the network is true. And you know you can get more or less in depth than that, but those real resources are a big part of it, and the the decentralised aspect is the other.
2: Because that resource part is 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 what was kind of um, revelatory to me, because I understood mm. it as uh, it, it being some kind of digital bureau de change into a digital currency, but it it's not just that. Then it, it it's it's being mined and created out of thin air using. I mean this this bit you're going to have to go through <laughs> with me on this mining
3: yeah. this mining thing is like so, mind-blowing the fact that it's half of the wor- half a percent of the world's
2: electricity is just I when I wild. read that recently I just couldn't believe it so so to to make new bitcoin you you have to get your computer to solve an equation but your you, your computer isn't solving an equation for the good of humanity it's just doing it to prove that you, you're willing to put in the effort to make the bitcoin
0: Exactly. Basically, the way the the Bitcoin network is secured, the way that everyone on this network makes sure that no one can just jump in and lie about how much money they have, is that every 10 minutes, one person on the network is given the right to validate all the transactions that happened in the last 10 minutes. And that means they take all, you know, everyone is sending every transaction they do all the time to everyone. So everyone is storing a record of every transaction every 10 minutes you go, stamp, I have heard these transactions. And that stamp doesn't go to a centralized authority. It doesn't go to your Santander or your PayPal. It goes to effectively the winner of a big old lottery. And the way you enter that lottery is by doing arbitrarily hard maths on your computer, literally pointless equations. The only reason why these equations exist is because they're hard to do on a computer. And that means that you can't do you can't just randomly spin up a billion lottery tickets to this lottery because each lottery ticket takes real computer cycles and so real electricity and real time to do. And that means that if you win it, if you win that lottery, then you're probably invested in the future of the Bitcoin network. You're probably not going to just randomly declare, oh, actually, all the money's mine. Because you know that A, the next lottery will win and undo it and go, that guy was a liar. And B, you've just spent real money backing up the Bitcoin network to win Bitcoin. You don't want to just crash the value of the whole thing. The difficulty with this sort of arbitrarily difficult maths is that the reason why people are incentivized to do it is every 10 minutes, the winner, as well as giving the right to stamp the past transactions, also gets some Bitcoin, the only newly created Bitcoin in the entire network. It's currently about six Bitcoin, which is... I mean, it'll change by the time this airs, even if this is live, but uh, six bitcoins, I think, about £70,000 now. So every 10 minutes, the network creates £70,000 worth of Bitcoin afresh. And kind of just as a a basic rule of economics, that means that it's worth the network at at large spending £70,000 worth of electricity every 10 minutes forever. And... And that's an awful lot of electricity. That's a whopping massive bill, about the size of Finland, seven times Google's annual energy footprint. You know,
3: that's only there so that you can have Bitcoin in this decentralised way. So, are there lots of people making money from the process of the mining? Are there people like winning the Bitcoin? Well, there's people who sort of
0: yeah. So, so you make six point two five, I think, handed out every ten minutes to to a lucky miner, and it is quasi random. But in practice, most people mining now tend to do it in these large pools. Again, the lottery analogy comes back, right? You don't want to throw all of this time and money at it and maybe not win. So instead, you pool your computing resources with 10 million other people. You know that one of you is going to win it every hour or so, and you split the resources, it comes out. In practice, not that many people make huge sums of money from mining because it's so carefully calibrated, right? Unless you have a very cheap source of electricity, you're probably going to end up spending as much money on the electricity and the computers as you get from the mines.
2: Is there a way of getting computers to do these equations or some kind of way of uh, validating the Bitcoin without using so much energy or or, uh, doing it in a way that is more renewable?
0: So, yes, but, and yes, and. The main way that Bitcoin has underpinned this idea of proof of work, there is no way of creating a proof of work that isn't wasteful because the waste is the proof. If you weren't wasting real resources, then it wouldn't cost you money to try and, effectively to try and print more lottery tickets than everyone else combined and guarantee that you win that lottery I was talking about earlier. So it has to cost you something real. Um, On renewables, you can't force it because it's a decentralized network. You would have no way of stopping other people from coming onto your renewables-only Bitcoin and mining with other things, because if you tried to require proof, well, then it's centralized again. Who do you hand the proof to? There are arguments that Bitcoin fans make that the economics of Bitcoin incentivize people to use renewable electricity. This is what you hear from people who will point out that, for instance, a lot of Bitcoin mining happens near uh, hydroelectric power stations because electricity costs money to transmit around the world. And so it is generally cheaper near points of generation. And it is very cheap near places with a lot of hydroelectric power because it tends to be quite remote. There isn't actually much demand for electricity in those areas. And so if you can move a Bitcoin mining rig to the area, you can access cheap electricity. That is true insofar as it goes, but the problems there are, A, it's probably not actively good to just take electricity that's being generated by a power station and use it on Bitcoin, rather than, say, providing an economic incentive for that power station to build more lines, lower the cost of transmission, or encourage actually socially useful uses of that electricity. And B, just because hydroelectric power is cheapest now doesn't mean that it's, it's going to be cheapest forever. And it's perfectly possible to imagine a version of the world where, for instance, every legitimate business in the world stops using coal and Bitcoin is the last remaining purchasers of coal power because that suddenly becomes cheapest because the demand plummets and Bitcoin is out there churning through it. So I don't think there is a renewable future for Bitcoin unless the whole world goes renewable and Bitcoin gets dragged along by default. What, 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 tell us what's
3: good about Bitcoin.
0: You know, this is where, and I'll, I'll, I'll be open to any uh, cryptocurrency fans who are listening, I am putting myself in their shoes. I am not the world's biggest fan of cryptocurrency. I think the the defense of it, that the positives of it, come back to that, that first principles thing, right? This is a decentralized form of money. And so the positives of it are the negatives of centralization. The positives of it are it's very hard to completely censor from a centralised body. That means it's hard for a state to fully stop the Bitcoin flowing. And it's hard for a a single uh, intermediary, a middleman, a, a bank or a credit card company to stop payments going through purely because they disapprove of it or because it happens to be illegal. Mostly in the UK, I think we all agree that enabling things that are illegal to happen more is generally bad. But that's not necessarily the case around the world. And a lot of advocates of Bitcoin like to point to things like capital controls in autocratic nations. It's easy to come up with these these ways that, you know, enabling lawbreaking, which is one of the key use points of Bitcoin, it's easy to come up with examples that make that good. At the same time, for most people in the UK, uh, I think the biggest uses of Bitcoin are um, buying drugs on the Internet, or paying ransomware uh
2: hostage payments so do, do 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 the very vocal fans of bitcoin tend to be these kind of i don't know uh, advocates of a libertarian utopia or people who think they might get rich off it and they don't want it taken away
0: these days, it feels more the latter. It's actually, it's it's quite refreshing uh, in my line of work to come across someone who is an unabashed fan of Bitcoin because they do want to destroy governments and destroy the Bank of England and hand monetary policy over to the people. Because I, I feel that's a very honest way of looking at it because that is what um, Bitcoin does. The people who kind of like Bitcoin because well, you know, you can you can speculate on it, make a bit of money, but I quite like the world mostly as it is, are, I think, to a greater or lesser extent, deluding themselves. If there is value in Bitcoin, it is the value of it being a sizable proportion of the economic activity of the world. The value of Bitcoin, the reason why you would speculate on it, is because you hope that the Bitcoin you buy now will be money, real money that everyone is using in a decade's time. But there's no world where Bitcoin is money, normal, everyday money that you're using in a coffee shop. There isn't also a world where Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee meets and just can't do anything because they don't control the rate of interest in Bitcoin loans and a world where, you know, the IRS and HMRC have no real ability to prosecute financial crime because there's no banking regulations that you can hold people to. You know, this is the world where Bitcoin becomes mainstream. Can I ask you
3: about dogecoin yeah. <laughs> so dogecoin is a cryptocurrency which was created as a joke yeah. making fun of the wild speculation in cryptocurrencies at the time um and dogecoin features the face of shiba inu the dog from the doge meme as its logo and namesake anyway dogecoin uh reached a market capitalization of over 85 billion dollars on may the 5th 2021 and then it crashed because Elon Musk appeared on Saturday Night Live and said something about um, uh, uh, Dogecoin. I mean it's all a bit kind of bananas, sorry, Alex, but I mean what at the risk of sort of just kind of confusing us all. what what do we to make of it? I mean it's just it's just nonsense.
0: There is a certain point where you just have to throw your hands up and go, this is nonsense. And the fact that there are big price tags attached to it doesn't mean it's not nonsense. The fact that the person who made the emperor's new clothes managed to sell them to all of the emperor's adoring fans and walk away with real cash doesn't mean there are really clothes. It means everyone is walking around naked. At a certain point, I stopped being able to give smart sounding explanations because the problem with this whole sector is that sometimes you say the basic facts and then people go, well, it must be more complicated than that because that sounds stupid.
3: It must be more complicated than that because it sound, that sounds stupid. And,
0: and it's just, it, sometimes it's just that stupid. This is a joke that you could nonetheless speculate on. And it right. created a speculative bubble, mostly because it had some very famous celebrity backers. The speculative bubble then burst, mostly because those very famous celebrity backers stopped backing it. And it's just silly and ridiculous. Has it's, it gone? Is it, where, is do, where
3: is Doge as we speak?
0: I, I'm proud to say I do not know the, rate, <laughs> right, the exchange rate of Doge off the top
3: of my head. You're uh, not investing in Doge anyway. Alex, is, let's end by asking this question. Is there anything we can learn from these positive that we can learn from these cryptocurrencies, do you think?
0: What I'd say is the positive is that um, we are in a world where a substantial number of people online starting to see the downsides of a centralized internet. And I've talked a lot about centralization as a government thing, but it's not just a government thing. You know, we live in a world where uh, payment processors basically threatened to shut down OnlyFans, a completely legitimate porn website, if it carried on being a porn website. Porn is legal in the UK. There was no legal problem that OnlyFans was accused of facing here. This was its banks decided they didn't want to work with a porn company and they nearly destroyed a billion dollar business. Facebook decides the contours of speech in much of the Western world. I think a lot of the appeal of these digital currencies is from people who want a way of ending that centralization. Decentralisation appeals to them as it appeals to me because it is ultimately about power. I just don't think breaking the ability of governments to enforce laws is worth what it would gain. And I have no real faith that a crypto first world wouldn't just invent its own new gatekeepers. But I can see the appeal.
3: Well, look, I think you have absolutely lived up to your <laughs> Mr. Bitcoin, uh, here's the ABC or A to Z reputation. Uh, Alex Hearn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff and Ed. Well, look, I'm glad to say to carry on with the sort of explanation of cryptocurrencies and what we can learn about digital money and the future of money. We're joined by Josh Ryan Collins, who's head of finance and macroeconomics at the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Josh, thank you for joining us for this rather mind-bending uh, conversation. Let's start by sort of moving on a bit from what we talked about with Alex, which is about central bank digital currencies. So maybe you could start by telling us why governments around the world are beginning to explore them.
4: Mm. The concept's been around for, for some time about 10 years. But um, but just recently, you've had this emergence of, of other forms of digital currency, Bitcoin, stable coins. And because of developments in information communication technology, the scalability of these types of innovations is suddenly looking more feasible. And I think central banks, to some extent, see that as a potential threat to their sovereignty, really, over the monetary system. But there are a range of other reasons, I think, for implementing a digital currency. The ones that the central banks are most attached to, I suspect, are around financial stability and sort of power and control over the monetary system.
3: And to sort of hold on to the kind of thought then, how would these central bank digital currencies be different to other digital currencies?
4: Yeah. So the the, the major difference would be that the digital unit issued by the Bank of England, the the central bank digital currency, uh, would be the safest form of asset you could hold, in that you you can't have a run on uh, a central bank IOU, uh, because the only way to redeem a central bank IOU is to get another central bank IOU. Um, So whereas an IOU from a commercial bank a loan from a commercial bank depends upon um, that bank having enough reserves and cash in the account so that if everyone withdraws all their money at the same time, there's um, enough there. That, that, that sort of run type scenario never applies to a central bank digital currency. And similarly with Bitcoin, what one could have, the value of Bitcoin or, or one of these stable coins um, is likely to be much more volatile. Than a, a central bank digital currency.
3: Just talk to us a little bit about the potential benefits of introducing a public digital currency in the UK. You've you've already touched on this, but you you know just just sort of maybe expand a little bit on what what it could do.
4: There is an argument to say that a central bank digital currency would be desirable for people to hold because it's the safest form of of assets, the most liquid form of asset. So one might get um, a scenario where A central bank issuing this would would want to ensure everyone had access to it and could set up some sort of public payments agency to ensure that every single person in the UK had a bank account with the Bank of England so that they had access to this digital currency. Um, In contrast, at at the moment, we have a scenario where actually a commercial bank is unlikely to give you a bank account. Unless you have a credit history or, or a, a, you know, a, an address which you can sort of demonstrably prove. Um, and so we have a financial exclusion problem. Effectively, We have a lot of people who don't don't have bank accounts. Um, so that would be one advantage.
3: And so, having slightly sort of scared the pants off everybody about how terrible these things are, in the first interview we did with Alex, you're saying actually, if the if it was do- digital currencies, I know it's not the same as cryptocurrencies, but digital currencies, if they were done through central banks, have a lot, quite a lot to recommend them.
4: Yeah, I, I believe so, but it would depend on their design. One could end up um, designing a currency uh, that didn't necessarily support public purpose if it was uh for example not made compulsory that everyone in the uk should have a a digital cbdc account so it does depend on on their design a lot
3: talk to us about the 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 question of sort of crisis everyone will remember the financial crisis of 2008 you know bank runs people queuing outside banks and the Bank of England stepped in to guarantee deposits is there some analogy here or some lesson to be learnt about the advantages of central bank digital currency versus a more sort of maverick you know not not not, not non central bank digital currency
4: yeah so I think a Cbdc would if you if you had maybe the way to think about it is having more of a mixed economy of types of of ways of holding your money you might choose for example to have Half of your sort of savings or your, the money that you spend on a month by month basis in a bank account that pays, you know, 2% interest rate. Um, and, you know, there's a slight bit of risk with that, particularly if you're holding more than I think it's £80,000 is, is the amount that the government, the deposit insurance is at the moment. But you might also choose to, to hold a smaller amount of your money in a central bank digital uh, bank account where the interest rate might be a bit lower but you know that there can there can't possibly be a run on that on that um, amount of money so it's it's 100% safe it's it's a bit like having your money under your bed but it's even more useful because it's digital that that's one obvious advantage the other advantage i think compared to say you know stable coins uh, bitcoin is as i said the central bank digital currency is not going to fluctuate in value relative to sterling or or the currency that most goods and services are denominated in, because it is denominated in sterling, the, uh, the central bank digital currency.
2: So it doesn't in any way replace sterling, it sits alongside it?
4: Yeah, a central bank digital currency would be essentially like digital cash, right? So it's just money created directly by the government, goes straight into your bank account, whereas, you know, with... With Bitcoin and these digital stable coins, um, you know, one, one could argue that, for example, if Amazon issued its own token backed by the ability to spend that token against any of its products and services, you could say that could be quite a stable token just because Amazon is so massive and there's so many things you could buy. But even then, you still can't pay your taxes with an Amazon token token. Right. You can trade Amazon tokens for sterling, but you need sterling to pay your taxes. So um, a CBDC is like a digital token that you can pay your taxes with. That's a sort of key distinction, I think, to make between CBDC and other company issued uh, tokens. But the reason central banks are worried and want to issue, it, I think, is because of fears of Amazon and Facebook and these massive digital tech companies and the Chinese and other big countries issuing their own digital coins.
2: And are they balancing that against traditional banks suddenly looking a bit redundant then? I mean, pe- people presumably wouldn't need bank accounts in the same way, or, or the, the the account, as it were, your digital money would be uh, given directly to you by the Bank of England.
4: Yeah, that, that's the big trade-off and the big design challenge, in a sense, because... Clearly, if you if you have the ability to hold your money directly at the Bank of England, why would you bother having your savings in a, in a commercial bank account? Um, and the risk is that you that those deposits that banks need in order to support their, their funding for their loans, um, you know, leaks out of the commercial banking system into the CBDC, uh, into into the banks we have at um, the Bank of England. So that's why you might need things like. Um, slightly different interest rates for a commercial bank account, savings account and a, and a um, central bank savings account. So one argument is this, if you're going to issue these things, you should have a lower interest account than, than the market rate as a way of sort of counterbalancing that risk that all of, those, all of that funding and liquidity flows out of the commercial banking system.
2: If you look around the world, are there countries that are making uh, serious moves in this direction towards a uh, uh, central bank digital currency?
4: Well, China, I think, is the most interesting uh, case. Uh, so in China, they've embarked on a major sort of regional test case where they've, they've launched a, a digital yuan in, a, in quite a large si- sort of city region in China. Um, I haven't seen the sort of initial results or, or any evaluations of it. But China is also interesting because they've, they've had a couple of different um, private sector issued uh, payment systems and, and sort of digital tokens. The government's clearly concerned that this private sector issued payment sort of currency is going to overtake the yuan and popularity. Um, and that's clearly a driver for them to issue their own. The other reason China's interesting is kind of obvious that it's, you know, global superpower rivaling the U.S. And I think a fear for central banks in, in the West is if this currency is successful, this digital yuan, might you see um, investors moving their assets out of dollars or sterling or euros into digital yuan? So, so I think there's, there's there's kind of geopolitical dynamics going on there, which are quite interesting.
2: Well well given that, how, how seriously are those conversations being had in the Bank of England? I mean, is is it something you would see happening here in the next decade, some kind of trial?
4: Oh absolutely. I think it'll be sooner than that. I think it'll be I think there'll be a trial within the next three or four years, I would say. Um and then I would expect a fully fledged currency within, you know, maybe six or seven years. But, you know, I'm not I'm not um I wouldn't put money in any of this. <laughs> but my concern a little bit is that the whole thing's happening without much public scrutiny or democratic sh- scrutiny. Um, so the Bank of England's consultation, for example, was was quite focused on kind of, you know, what what financial institutions think about this and what companies think about it, and much less about what households think and civil society. And I think there's a there's a bit of a risk that we miss the opportunity to sort of rethink the monetary system more broadly um in terms of its public purpose as a utility and that you know applies to the, the financial exclusion issue and the getting credit to the right parts of the economy type argument i think all of those things could be addressed to some extent by this but they might just not be addressed if if there isn't more sort of democratic scrutiny of it
2: well it's uh it's it's so interesting Josh, thank you so much. That's Josh Ryan Collins from the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Thank you. Well, to give your, uh, give your head a break from spinning, we're we're going to um, move off digital currency and talk about the future of cash itself with Rachel Statham, who is a senior research fellow at the IPPR. Hello, Rachel.
5: Hi there.
2: Hi. Uh, I know there was um, an IPPR re- report last year about the future of cash. So I want to talk to you uh, about the detail of that. I guess I, the, the the first thing is I said to earlier. I, I really I really dislike cash. It drives me nuts when places will only accept cash, um, and I understand some people don't have access to to, to bank accounts and so forth. Should we be thinking about bringing people up to be able to access digital transactions rather than sort of slavishly hanging on to cash? Uh,
5: yeah, I think for, for those of us who already live quite uh, digital lives, uh, it can be a bit confounding to think about uh, you know, the continued need for cash. What we found through our research um, and from talking to people across the UK um, is there is a kind of hardcore people who still rely on cash day to day um, as well as people who, you know, prefer to use cash uh, for whatever reason. What are the reasons people prefer to use cash? So we found there's a a major motivation, is a sense of control. People feeling like they can better manage their money, manage their money more effectively um, if they can kind of see the cash in their wallet, uh, you know, either uh, at the end of the month um, or the end of the week. Um, as well uh, as a, uh, levels of kind of distrust uh, in banks or other financial institutions, where people feel like they don't trust um, kind of digital providers to be able to manage their money as reliably as as they can, if they can kind of see the cash uh, uh, that they've got in their hand. Um, and people will also express concerns around privacy. People uh, weren't sure why people needed to know, you know, kind of what they're spending their money on, you know, or how much they were spending. Um, and that sense of privacy, we found, was really quite tangible, um, particularly amongst um, older people who've been using, you know, kind of cash as a norm throughout their lives. But I think particularly uh, those that rely on cash tend to be people managing tight budgets, uh, people on lower incomes um, who, you know, really need to know where, where every penny's going. Um, we heard stories, for instance, um, from mums who talked about, you know, the start of the school year. They make sure they pay for uh, a school uniform in cash, um, so that if uh, you know a fussy wee one uh, has, you know, needs a different size in something, they don't need to pay out twice um, and wait for a refund to come back into their account. As well as um, people who, you know, have experienced financial insecurity and you know who don't trust uh, banks not to. Um, kind of put, you know, unseen charges on things because they're concerned about things like uh, overdraft fees, um, and cash is an option that you know kind of eliminates some of that risk for them.
2: How many people don't have access to uh, to a bank account?
5: So you know, there's about five million people in the UK that are uh, reliant on cash still, um, and then you know there still is a kind of significant core of, um, of kind of unbanked adults um, who don't have any access to kind of digital uh, digital banking um, at all, um, and those ten people will with no fixed address. People who uh, are really kind of entirely digitally excluded, people with experience um, of homelessness, and this shift towards a digital world where now you can no longer get on a bus, um, you know, or kind of buy a, a cup of tea without uh, having access to those um, you know, to digital payments, uh, is a real concern. Um, we've we've definitely seen uh, you know those kind of uh, those kind of concerns accelerate through the pandemic as well. At the start of the pandemic. I started taking pictures whenever I went into, you know, kind of shop or a cafe um, that had um you know a sign on the door saying we're no longer accepting cash, sorry. Um and now I've you know stopped stopped taking those pictures altogether because uh, that's so commonplace. You know, so we saw, you know, I think initially uh, kind of concerns about uh potential transmission of the virus via cash. I think a lot of those concerns have been assuaged. Um but we have seen a transition, particularly for small businesses, uh towards kind of digital only payments. There is a worry that that excludes people from you know from uh, taking part in the local economies, you know, from going along and, and sharing a cup of tea with somebody in a local cafe, and um, if you feel like uh, you know you might not be able to to pay for that reliably.
2: And, and, and thinking about the future, is it more important that we preserve access to cash, or is it about uh, plugging some of the holes that you've talked about with regards to people being able to have bank accounts or refunds not going into people's accounts? quick enough or just the trust in digital transactions where should the focus be
5: so i think we are going to need to retain a kind of basic cash infrastructure in the uk and particularly while digital technology uh, kind of uh, catches up um, and becomes more inclusive but there are concerns about people who uh, are unlikely to be able to use um, digital payments um, you know for all their needs um, if you think about people with um, learning disabilities or somebody with dementia trying to manage uh, kind of digital banking, and particularly people who rely already on carers to help them manage their money, um, cash is a really helpful tool there. Um, although you, you know you could see a world in which digital um, digital solutions offer you know kind of greater control, greater oversight, you know than, than cash does. But I think that, you know there's definitely uh, consumers who you, know, you think that um, cash is kind of their right and rightly so um, to have you know to have that level of privacy. Um, so we're going to need to see, uh, I think, better incentives uh, to make digital new, te- new digital technologies more inclusive. But we're also going to need to see uh, serious action um, to, to retain our cash infrastructure, to make sure that, you know, that there are payment options available to everyone um, across the UK.
3: So, 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 Rachel, given everything you've said, what, what should governments be actually doing to protect access to cash?
5: Um, so we've called um, for legislation uh, to, to make a universal service obligation on cash. So that would be a bit like what we've got for a kind of um, water access for other really basic utilities. Um, and that can make sure that we've got access to cash in, a, in every kind of town, village, city across the UK. Um And that will make sure that we don't have people that are kind of excluded through the process of this transition. Um, But it's important that we also look towards um, kind of technological uh, solutions uh, like in-store cashback across local economies uh, for local shops and businesses to provide. And we also need to think about things like ATM uh, provision. So we know from uh, analysis of the UK ATM network at the moment, you know, where people actually get cash out the provision is a lot more patchy, um, in more deprived areas and lower income areas, um, than it is in you know, in city centres, um, where people are actually less likely to be relying uh, on on cash payments to start with. So we need to see action to make sure that there is, uh, you know, c- the cash continues to be viable. Um, but that also matters um, for small businesses um, who are facing uh, high charges to process cash. Some of them are deciding it's not worthwhile, you know, to accept cash payments because there are a smaller and smaller portion of the payments they're, they're receiving. Um, so that kind of um, banking infrastructure across the UK matters, not just for consumers, but for, uh, you know, for vendors, people accepting cash payments too. Fundamentally,
3: how can we make digital payments more accessible to people and make the transition to digital payments as fair as possible?
5: Yeah, so we've got concerns about making sure that, you know, that there are the right incentives in place for people who are developing new digital technologies, that it's not just serving um, those consumers whose habits we already understand the best. So those people who are very digital, um, you know, whose uh, bank might be able to know exactly where they spend just about all of their money. So there is a risk um, that we see uh, better and better services for those that are already digital. Um, you know, The kind of digital consumer can have a really clear overview of their finances. They can use kind of integrated tools along with their banking apps to save better or to, to see where they're spending. Um, but those um, who are more likely to rely on cash who are less likely to, to be online, who are less able at the moment to use those tools, um, being left behind. Um, and so we need to make sure not just um, that new digital technologies um, are kind of uh, accessible in terms of um, disability, um, but that they uh, you know, are taking into uh, into consideration the kind of range of consumer preferences um, and where different consumers are at in, when it comes to digital tech.
3: And so, Rachel, to finish with, there's a sort of interesting question, which is, how long do we expect cash? I know this is kind of slightly amazing to be asking this. How long do we expect expect cash to be around? Ten years, more or less? What What's your thinking on that?
5: Well, I think coming into the pandemic, uh, we expected uh, the latest forecast at that point uh, suggested about one in ten payments we made using cash by twenty twenty eight, um, and now we've seen a much more rapid you know kind of shift towards uh, digital payments. So there's a 35% decline in cash use just in 2020 alone. We expect that uh, kind of uh, acceleration will have continued through uh, this year too. Um, and so we could see, you know, less than less than one in 10 payments uh, being cash payments uh, really fast. And that does raise you know, considerable questions about uh, about how we can make sure that the UK's cash infrastructure remains viable. And there's big questions also about what this means for um, our growing digital economy.
3: Well, look, Rachel Statham from IPPR, it's a really important subject. It's really important for social justice reasons to understand the role of, of cash and the impact that its disappearance could have. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thanks very much for having me.
3: Well, it was a head-scratcher, mind-bender, brain-teaser. Uh, anything else? Any other
2: sort of No, adjectives? no, all uh, of the above. Here's, here's the challenge for me. I'm going out to dinner with some people tomorrow night. I want to see how much... I can retain of what Alex explained to me so that I can sound like some kind of authority on the subject of Bitcoin. At the moment, I think I'm holding it in my head quite well. Will that sustain for 24 hours?
3: Well, I find it very, I think it's hard. It is. It is. I mean, what do you think then about, I mean, maybe we should start at the back first. I mean, cash.
2: Yeah. As I said at the beginning, I really don't like cash. You're cashing out, basically. I really agree that uh, the transition to to digital should be inclusive and the, the transition shouldn't happen so quickly that people get left behind but everything that Rachel mentioned I feel could be dealt with by thinking about the transition in a smart way rather than uh, by hanging on to cash I mean you do we do have to find a way of, prov- of- protecting of the co- Of unbanked. course, yeah, yeah. You know, well, I'm absolutely. getting that. I mean, it can't happen too quickly, and it has to, has to be completely inclusive as well. Nobody should be... And also, all, for older people, I mean, I think there are, I mean... I don't know. I think there might be limitations. But that, do you know what yeah, I mean? but that, that's that's what I mean about too quickly. But people people do adapt. We adapt to all kinds of things, don't we? Probably when well, people true. started using money, people saying, oh, "I'd just rather barter by swapping a goat for a pig," or you know.
3: I mean, that's what the podcast of the time was saying. <laughs>
2: uh, I was really struck by the conversation with
3: Alex because very few people sort of call out this whole Bitcoin thing as just like really an unalloyed bad. Mm. People sort of think, well, it's overvalued and it's a bit of this and it's a bit of that and it's so on, but there's virtues and so on. And I mean, I suspect his view is kind of controversial, but I thought it was quite interesting that he was quite, you know, sort of, you know, very, very hard, 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 no,
2: hard nailed yeah, about it. Yeah, because it sometimes has this kind of tech ideal, this Silicon Valley ideal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Onto, yeah. When in actual fact, you think... You know, it's, it's people looking at capitalism, thinking, "God, I missed out the first time round. What if we build a new one? Then I could be one of the winners."
3: But, but, but maybe the central bank thing is the is going to be the answer.
2: Maybe the central banks have realised,
3: "Well, look, there's something in this, but we don't. We're not going to have it like as a kind of cowboy sort of set of institutions, non-institutions. We've got to have some semblance of of sort of check on it." Final thing, we didn't really. The Jeff didn't get much of a look in what's gonna what's gonna happen in the jeffocracy on this
2: we're gonna go cash free but we're gonna have y- yeah uh we're gonna have uh, uh banknotes as nfts non-fungible tokens don't worry ed you're looking confused we can do an episode about that another time
3: i really want to do one on non-fungible tokens i have actually. not
2: got a clue if you think this made your head spin start getting into that stuff Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
1: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away.
2: And for our cheerful person this week, we're we're going to talk about a project that is, I think, so interesting that as soon as Joel told us about it, we thought, oh, we've got to find out more. It involves, without giving too much away, a disco bike, but that is just a small part of it. Um, From the environmental charity Hubbub, we are joined by creative partner Ray Hopkinson. Hello.
6: Hi. Hello. Hello. Well,
2: <laughs> thank you for um thanks for taking the time to talk to us and you're here to tell us about a bike library. Um so let's start with basics. I mean a, a bike library and I, I know those two words they don't usually go together.
6: No, they don't and there's been a lot of confusion along the way as to what on earth a bike library is. But essentially Um, It's a library where you don't borrow books, but you borrow bikes, Um, but actually it's more than that. It's a kind of holistic um, cycling hub um, where we offer free bike loans, free cycle training, um, bike maintenance, as you mentioned, access to a disco bike, which is pretty cool. It's a stationary bike, which um, powers music.
2: So what is it's like, it's it's a dynamo that that gets the music going?
6: Yeah, exactly.
2: And is it a disco-like experience being on the disco bike?
6: There's no kind of lights um, or dancing, but yeah, it's a a kind of cheery, fun action to add a bit of of positivity into a a bit of a mundane day.
2: I'm all for the, the, the disco bike. And, and this is in Tower Hamlets in London. Tell us a little bit about why Tower Hamlets and then what kind of response you've had from the community.
6: This project is a, a collaboration between ourselves at Hubbub, um, Sustrans, who are a walking and cycling um, charity that you might have heard of, and then Poplar Harker, who are a housing association. Um, in Poplar. And the reason being Tower Hamlets is that there's a number of barriers to cycling there, um, some of which you see across London, but some that are particularly um, kind of unique to Tower Hamlets. So it's the second um, most densely populated um, local authority in the country, meaning there's a severe lack of room for, for cycle storage. And another big barrier being um, confidence and um, concern around kind of safety on the roads, which I'm sure you know is one of the biggest barriers for many people.
2: And it's free to free to borrow the bikes?
6: Yeah, it's free. Yeah, everything's free. So where, where do the bikes come from? So this is just a pilot which is being funded by all three um, partner organisations. Um, and we're just going to be open until the end of September. The aim is to try and get um, longer-term funding to stay in that space up until um, potentially the spring.
3: Has the take-up met your expectations, exceeded your expectations? How has it gone? You see, you were about to be interviewed by German TV, so obviously <laughs> news is travelling around the world.
6: Yeah, the news has, has been travelling fast. We've so far... Um, engaged with around 400 people um, in the first month and 200 people have joined activities so from our point of view it's um, exceeded expectations most of the activities are are fully booked and we're trying to accommodate more people where possible. Um, If I may ask what, what sort of gave you the idea so we're working on a, another project um, at Hubbub with an amazing charity called Cycle Sisters um, and their aim is to um, inspire particularly Muslim women to get into cycling. So it was part inspired by that. Um, Poplar Lohaka and Sustrans have also been running their own cycling initiatives in the borough and it was something that we'd kind of loosely come across in the past and seen other examples of but we wanted to really try all this um concept of a holistic uh cycle hub so it was kind of yeah i guess an idea from all three organizations um and ho- hopefully trying to combat this this big storage issue that i mentioned in the borough
2: sounds good to me jeff what do you think it really does. I mean, just, just one last thing. Both Ed and I have some nervous about using our arms to, to, to indicate mm-hmm. when we're turning. I'm, I'm over thing. that, by the way. Are you over that? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm still not over that. More or less. But I was I was going to ask Ray for some advice, but maybe, yeah. maybe you could tell me how you got over it. Practice.
3: Practice. Practice. I'm actually thinking, Jeff, of graduating from the electric to a non-electric. An acoustic.
2: Oh, ooh. I old school.
3: Because don't, I don't use the electric... Thing because I'm so fitness mad in, as part of my midlife crisis. And, uh, and I sort of then, uh, Justine just keeps saying to me, well, you, you're running a very
2: heavy bike. Um, I think she's right. Yeah. It would be like a reverse Bob Dylan <laughs> when he started using the electric guitar after establishing himself as an acoustic artist you'd be going the other way people might shout Judas at you in the street although many people have compared me to Bob Dylan in so many different ways actually Ray thank you so much as, we, as Ed said you're very much in demand a lot of people want to talk to you about this so thank you so much uh, for, for telling us uh, and it's the crisp street community cycles if people want to look it up and if people want to set up
3: their own at the risk of inundating you with requests they can contact you. Go for it.
6: We're ready. Yeah, please do. Um, you can email us at hello at hubbub.org.uk.
1: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: Well, I'm off to the Royal Mile to do my event in Edinburgh. Uh, what, what, are you, what are your plans for the weekend?
2: I, I was half thinking about uh, taking a train to Edinburgh and uh, watching from a distance as you try and rustle up more people to join you for swimming at an ungodly time yeah, in the
3: morning. Yeah, that's true. I, talking of my exercise and sort of general bra- bra- braggadaccio, I have smashed my personal best at Parkrun
2: 2334. It's not the Roids, is it, Ed? The what? Roids. What's, what's the Roids? you're not taking steroids are you no i
3: promise you okay i deny okay. i deny all sort of steroid um allegations great uh, I, I deny all hemorrhoid allegations yeah i thought that's what you might have meant uh <laughs> i thought that might sort of somehow make me run faster um should we thank our guests? yes alex
2: hearn josh ryan collins and rachel statham And thanks to Ray Hopkinson from Hubbub. Emma Caution produces our podcast. All the research and guest booking is done by Joel Pierce, who's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed our music. James Deacon made the ident, and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been all at sea. He's been a landlubber, and these have been reasons to be cheerful.